Welcome to A Photographer's Life. The channel that takes you behind the curtain into the world of professional architectural photography. Join us now for an episode with one of America's top photographic copyright attorneys. Today's broadcast comes from a recent interview and question and answer session with respected Virginia attorney David Deal. Today's interview and discussion were conducted by AIAP Director Alan Blakely. We hope you enjoy the show. If you do, please let us know by liking this episode and subscribing to this channel. Now, on with the show. We'd like to welcome David Deal, a copyright attorney from Charlottesville, Virginia, to our podcast this morning. David, welcome, and uh, thank, thank you for you. joining us. Absolutely. Um, many of our members are already familiar with you because of dealings with Pixie and, uh, and things like that with regard to copyright and also directly with you. But I wonder if you might just kind of describe um, your your journey. I know you started out as a photographer, and, and now you're a well-respected copyright attorney. Can you tell us just a little bit about that, what that journey was like? Sure. Uh, I started, um, I went to, uh, I got a degree in architecture, um, but I spent most of my time in the dark room in the architecture school and oh. uh, by the end of by the end of college i i started freelancing and ended up uh primarily shooting for magazines and did a little bit of advertising almost exclusively shooting feature portraits or or documentary uh portraits uh using a, a four by five uh Ooh. view camera um you, I shot with the Hasselblad a little bit, but primarily I shot with a four by five uh, with slide film, you know, that, that produced a certain, you know, a certain kind of look and shallow depth of field and so forth. Uh, and then at some point uh, things changed and uh, I noticed, I noticed I was getting hired less and editorial clients were um, changing their business model to include staff photographers. And I took the to to go to law school with the intent to represent photographers, and uh, it took it took a, maybe a year, a year and a half after I graduated to kind of uh, get into the swing of things and figure out uh, kind of what that really meant uh, representing photographers and and you know kind of what the what the the niche looked mm -hmm. like and required. Um, but you know, as of nine years ago, almost ten years ago now, I. My office represents exclusively photographers around the world uh, in not exclusively, but almost exclusively matters of copyright infringement where works of a photographer have been you copied and used without license or permission by, you know, uh, you name it, you know, companies big and small. Uh, and so that's what we do. That's what we specialize in. Um, I've recently added an associate uh, because of the workload and, you know, things are, things are, are chugging along. That's great. Um, it seems like you come with some special skills having been a photographer and um, some special understanding about that industry. So um, I think that's, that's really kind of interesting that you've gone that route. Um, I, I'm just wondering if um, you might, um, talk us, you know, through just a little bit about how a photographer comes to contact you and, and what, what services you then offer them or, you know, how that interaction works and, uh, and how you can assist photographers. 
Yeah, I mean, um, photographers, I, you know, at least just, you know, kind of anecdotally, photographers usually uh, hear about the office through word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't always used to be the case. I, I started doing uh, work exclusively, almost exclusively with Pixie, um, who refer cases to me. Uh, but now things, things have changed. I, you know, I get a lot of, got to look, get a lot of return clients and, and clients that have been referred to the firm by, by former clients, uh, of the, of the office. So I would say now the majority, the vast majority of clients come to the office, um, not by us reaching out, but by, by, you know, knowledge of our office in the, in the field. Okay. And, you know, we, um, we typically don't, although we, we perform, sometimes we perform a little bit of the function that someone, a company like Pixie does performing kind of reverse searches and, and mm-hmm. act looking, but that is, that's very uncommon. Usually, oh, and this is the way we like it. Overwhelmingly clients come to us with a matter that they believe constitutes infringement mm-hmm. and we take it from there. Okay. Um, could you maybe talk to, to us just a little bit about what mistakes photographers make with regard to copyright and, and what you see as being some of the things that they fall short on as photographers? Yeah. I mean, the, the single, I mean, the, the copyright from the photographer's point of, you know, standpoint, it, copyright infringement is, is remarkably simple uh, to to be very good at, you know, a, a photographer. The single, the single easiest and most important thing that a photographer can do, if the photographer is shooting at any quantity and and length of time, is to to register their work. I mean that that one thing uh, can dramatically alter the balance of power when it comes to enforcing their works that they believe have been infringed and not only registering their work with the copy the u.s copyright office but doing it in a way that that makes their work uh quote unquote timely registered and timely registration means is a it's a specific legal term that means images that were registered were registered within three months of original publication by anyone or prior to the act of infringement. Uh, if you have if you have satisfied one, you know, one or both of those, your images are timely registered. And therefore you are eligible from that point on to elect statutory damages as opposed to actual damages mm. uh, at, at trial. And okay. And obviously, you know, a fraction of the cases that my office handles gets anywhere near litigation, mm. but it's the power of, of being, being eligible for statutory damages that, that dramatically changes the landscape of negotiations um, with opposing parties that have infringed upon a photographer's work. Uh, statutory damages are based on the actions of the infringer uh, mm. or lack thereof. Uh, how much due diligence did they do? What their history of, uh, you know, in the copyright infringement uh, world is, whether or not they're repeat offenders, uh, whether or not they communicated with the uh, 
photographer or their agent prior to then copying the work. Mm. And it, it dramatically, statutory damages can be dramatically more than actual damages, which are which are based exclusively on the value of what a license would have been for the infringing oh, use. Okay. So oh. the best clients that I have are are ones who build in a system of registering their work every three months. Every three months they they have a they have a system, whether it's automated or just the, their own uh, kind of uh, homegrown system of mm -hmm. batching their images in groups of 750 or less, then registering those groups with the copyright office within three months of capture. And that way, that way you are, regardless of the date of infringement, regardless of anything else, those images are timely registered. And therefore any, any infringement that takes place on those, you know, uh, concerning those images, the images are timely registered. And, and we, meaning, you know, the photographer in my office, when push comes to shove, we have a, we have a huge, uh, kind of, uh, weapon that we would not otherwise have. Okay. Interesting. I know that, that the batch registration is a relatively new thing, uh, with the copyright office and, um, a lot of photographers, I think are still not registering anything. So there's probably a high percentage that you deal with that are unregistered. Is that Fair to say. That is that is absolutely fair to say. And and to be clear, a lot of uh, you know, and and I I say this I say this being you know lumping myself into the group when I was shooting. Mm -hmm. A lot of photographers that come to our office are under the impression that um, once the infringement has taken place and the image or images are not registered, then they lose their rights to enforce the copyright, which is absolutely not correct. Um, a copyright vests in the author at the time of creation. So the, the process of registering images is a formality. Uh, it is It does not bestow uh, copyright on the author once the copyright office approves the application. Photographers are, you know, absent any kind of written agreement otherwise, mm. at the moment they capture the images, they are the sole copyright holder. The U.S. Supreme Court a couple of years ago uh, held that in order to bring a proper cause of action for copyright infringement in U.S. District Court, images must be registered at the time of filing. So there's a threshold for okay. photographers to have registered images prior to filing suit, but that doesn't that doesn't affect copyright itself, mm. and it certainly doesn't affect our ability to assert copyright um, prior to registration. Okay. Uh, my office, my office resolves. You know, probably half the cases we resolve are with images that are are not yet registered. Okay. Uh, it's clear, and you know, we we provide. You know, when when questioned and when pushed on it, there's a you know there there are a couple different ways that we can demonstrate our client is indeed number one, the author, and is indeed the copyright holder, even mm -hmm. without a, an actual approved registration. So the notion that notion that we can't do anything mm -hmm. until the image is registered, that's not accurate. It obviously helps, mm -hmm. but, and it just, you know, crosses, crosses another really important thing kind of off the list of things to do yeah. prior to filing suit if we end up there, but it's not a requirement for asserting copyright. Okay. I think a lot of photographers are confused about that. 
that there's uh, that they haven't registered and therefore they can't do anything about it. There's also right. a perception among photographers that there might be some downsides to pursuing infringement. Um, what's your feeling about those attitudes? You know, there there is there is indeed, uh, unfortunately, it it you know I don't think it should be this way, but in my experience. Um, there, it, it depends on, you know, every case is different. Every mm -hmm. photographer is different. Um, but there is a, like it or not, you know, photographers overwhelmingly, uh, you know, we at kind of the bottom of the food chain, you know, meaning especially architectural photographers, especially photographers that shoot primarily in, in homes, whether it's for listings or mm -hmm. uh, construction companies or, you know, design companies like it or not um you know would you, you know with with a with a few exceptions you know you're you're on that list alan you know photographers we we are at kind of the low end of things mm -hmm. which means that in the end we need to satisfy our clients we need to maintain the relationships on which we depend um for work uh you know i'll give you i'll give you an anecdote I, I have plenty of photographers that fall into this category, but there's, you know, there's a photographer who has two or three very large, significant, well-paying clients and everyone else is, you know, a distant second. Mm. And we had a matter come up uh, with one of his large clients. The large, the large client wasn't the one that did anything wrong, but the, you know, this is going to sound very familiar to any architectural photographer, all these third parties involved in the shoot, you know, the, uh, the, the person that did the interior design, the windows, the floors, all of the construction company, all of these people are somewhat involved in the product or the, the, uh, the photographs themselves and right. think they have, you know, some kind of right to then use the images because they're quote unquote, their work. Mm -hmm happened happens all the time and in this case one of the third parties made copies itself from mm -hmm. the original client's website now the original client uh the paying client didn't do anything wrong but everything comes back to that person so when a third party is contacted my by my office or my client individually the first thing that they do is they they run back to the original client and right. say i don't understand why i can't use these images <laughs> and while most original clients in my experience are very good um with their with their photography the photographers yeah. that they hire they're very protective and very defensive and very supportive some are not mm -hmm. and simply don't want to expend the time and the stress and the money dealing with issues um, of infringement where they could or couldn't and whether they like it or not could be dragged into some kind of litigation yeah so i often have the scenario where photographers come to me and say like what do i do mm. like um you know i want to i'm i'm serious about my my enforcing my infringement you know my my copyright matters but i can't afford to lose this client yeah and i don't even know if i can i can bring the subject matter up with them at the risk of at the risk of making them upset and and you know getting fired yeah, yeah. so it's a very real concern um and my advice to my clients always is uh, the big picture is if you are shooting for a client that does not respect your work and does not support you that may not be the right client for you 
Yeah. Um, but but even in a smaller picture, the best thing you can do as a photographer is, you know, with a little bit of finesse, educate your clients about about the basics of copyright law mm -hmm. and, and work that into your agreements with your clients. Mm -hmm. So if push comes to shove, you you are not only on the the right side, you know, kind of in your gentleman's agreement with your client, but you are on the right side legally where you have a document that states, you know, for example, all other uses by, you know, third parties need to be in, you know, independently negotiated with the photographer, you know, for a separate and distinct license fee, something like that. Okay. So everyone knows what the landscape is before, you know, a couple months after the shoot, all hell breaks loose because, because no one was, no one was clear on the boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's excellent advice. And I can relate entirely to what you just yeah. So um, just kind of looking back over the last few years of your legal career, has this problem changed at all? Has it gotten better or worse? Or, you know, as far as companies that um, are, are buying photography, um, wh where do you see things heading? You know, I, um, there, there will always, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm well past, uh, you know, questioning myself about being cynical or not. I mean, it, it is, I mean, that that's, you know, that that's not a question. Mm -hmm. Infringers or, or, or entities that infringe will never stop. I mean, that, that, that is, that's just not even, it's not even a question. There will be, there will always be entities that infringe by willfully infringing by neglect, by being lazy, there will always be entities that infringe. The, the biggest, the biggest change in the, in the, the landscape that I've seen in the last couple of years is um, photographers proactively, um, you know, kind of detailing the, the landscape of copyright and proper licensing and and even going one step further in proactively identifying the possible third parties that are proper licensees of their work and mm -hmm. and building them into the uh the the license structure building yeah. them in as a second third fourth licensee prior to the shoot mm -hmm. um not necessarily securing licenses um, prior to the shoot, but but reaching out to the potential third, you know, second, third party yeah. uh, licensees and identifying, you know, this is what it's, it will cost you. You're getting a break because you're not the primary. Mm -hmm. um, that is that is overwhelmingly um, taking place more and more, and that's a result of photographers being better educated, and it's also a result of 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 clients being mm -hmm. better educated, and you know we kind of we kind of crossed the line somewhere a couple of years ago where it's not uncommon for a business of some size to have experience with being being contacted about infringing upon someone's work yeah uh 5 10 15 years ago that was it was an anomaly mm. now even in the past couple of years my overwhelming experience is the entities that we have matters with, they've been down this road before. Okay. And so they, you know, they, um, you know, they, they might not have been involved in litigation, but mm -hmm. they, 
it is not new to them. Okay. Uh, uh, so cuts both ways, you know, that, you know, the, the, some, some infringing entities get very bitter and kind of dig in and others adapt and do mm -hmm. the right thing and, you know, take preventative measures uh, to, you know, not let it happen uh, again. And if it does kind of uh, be very pragmatic about resolving cases, that's Ooh. overwhelmingly the the biggest change that I've noticed in the past couple of years. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's really encouraging. Um, you've given us some excellent background here. We're going to uh, break here for just a second, and then we're going to have uh, members of AIP join us for a question and answer period with you. But um, you've given in just a few minutes a wealth of information that um, I'm sorry to say you're not billing us for. But, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, David. This has been great. And uh, we will be back again here in just a second. We'd like to welcome everyone to this August AIAP Zoom meeting. We're very fortunate to have uh, attorney David Deal joining us today for a question and answer session. David is a copyright attorney. On the previous uh, portion of this episode, you saw a conversation I had with David where he explained his work. And we're joined now by AIAP members who are uh, full-time architectural photographers who will be uh, talking with David about some of the challenges and questions that they have regarding copyright and infringement and, uh, and some legal questions that uh, David's been so generous to take his time to answer for us. So welcome, David, and welcome to all of you who have joined us so far this morning. Um, we're going to be um, starting off with some, um, some questions here. If anybody has, go ahead and, and post them in that chat window. But um, um, I just wanted to, uh, to start out with um, just a general question for David, and, and I kind of talked about this in our, in our previous um, meeting, but if you had um, a single message based on your experience, David, now David worked as a photographer, for those of you who don't know, at a very high level, um, and so uh, he's somebody who understands this really well. But David, if you had a message for photographers about uh, what they're doing wrong and what they could do right, what can you, is there something you kind of distill that down into? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, um, the uh, overwhelming thing that uh, photographers can do is to register their work. There, there is, I mean, I give, I give the same, the same speech all the time. There is, there is no even, even close second. The, the, the single most like exclusive of what type of work you shoot, exclusive of your clients, exclusive of your, the quality of your work, uh, how long you've been shooting, the, the number of shoots you have. The, the, the fact, if, if you build in a, a regular, workflow that includes registering your work, um, you are going to have a, not just an advantage, but a overwhelming advantage when it comes to matters of infringement that are, that are, you know, uh, that involve more than just communicating with the infringer and, and recovering a license fee. Um, for for every photographer, that's a different threshold. You know, some some photographers are 
very aggressive. Some photographers don't don't uh, kind of uh, pursue the their infringement matters at all, and everyone else is is in between. But if you're if you if you've been shooting for any length of time and are and are at all serious about enforcing your infringement or potentially uh the single best thing you can do is to register your work and not just register but register your work timely so timely registration is is not just a, a not just kind of a, a throwaway phrase it is a legal term that has a legal definition in copyright law and timely registration means that the work is has been either registered before the date of infringement or within three months of original publication. Um, publication and capture are not the same thing. They're in 99% of the time, they're effectively the same thing, but legally speaking, they're not the same thing. Publication means made available for sale or copying. So if you send a group of images to a client, if you post a, uh, some images online, if you um, set up, you know, some kind of gallery where people can view them, that's publication. So you typically, the date of capture and the date of publication are, if they're not the same date, they're within a day or two. In any case, if you, you know, to, to, to eliminate that, that is an issue. If you get into the habit of timely registering your work in batches every three months, every single one of your images is going to be timely registered. And the reason that that matters is not just because it's registered with the copyright office. Um, that that by itself is a prerequisite to filing suit in in district court. But you will be eligible for statutory damages as opposed to actual damages. You can't you can't select both when when you file a file a suit or even assert a copyright uh, infringement matter. You can choose one. It makes you it makes you eligible to to choose statutory damages, which are in theory and in my in my experience, much more likely to be considerably higher because they are punitive in nature as opposed to based on what a proper license fee might be. They're punitive because some of the calculations of damages are based on what actions or not the infringing party took. You know their history of infringing, whether or not they they you know kind of communicated with the photographer before they infringed, and the photographer told them it was going to be a thousand dollars each to license the images, and then they just ignored them. and And you, you think I'm joking? I'm not. <laughs> um, uh, so so when you timely register your work for purposes of negotiation, like when, when I negotiate on behalf of my clients and I have timely registered work, I am, I am much, much more, I'm in, I'm in a much, much stronger position than if, if the images weren't timely registered. So my best clients, uh, in, when it comes to registration, they have four dates a year where they dedicate to registering, batching their work and registering them with the copyright office. So groups of up to 750 images, are one registration. So um, don't quote me, but I think it's 55, 65, at the most $75 per registration. So you could register 750 images for effectively one cent each, each image. And every one of those in a group registration is timely registered. That, that is 
overwhelmingly the best and best and most efficient use of your time if you are serious about enforcing uh, your your copyright. There there is there is not a close second. Um, so Jack. Uh, asked if I haven't registered my work in a timely manner, can I do it much later? What will what will I lose by not being timely? This is this is always this is a question I get all the time. So um, copyright vests when photographers capture the image. Period. Absent any kind of work for hire agreement or any kind of agreement that you might have worked out with your your client or or anybody else that would upset the fact that that you are the copyright holder. At the moment of capture, you are the copyright holder. That's it. You you have from that point on, you have the rights of of any other copyright holder for any other copyrightable work. The difference between there's a little gap between being a copyright holder and being able to enforce it. Uh, and by enforce it, I mean file a file a case in U.S. District Court to enforce your copyright for an infringer. There's all these things in between. So um, to, the, the short answer is no, you can register, you can register work at any time. It doesn't matter. You can register work that you shot 30 years ago. Of course, it, it won't be timely if, if infringements have happened before the date of registration, but everything after that point, every, every, every potential infringement after that point will be deemed to be timely registered. The only thing, the only, um, the only thing that makes a late registration less powerful is there is a small part of the statute that states uh, registration within five years of original publication is prima facie evidence that the, the copyright registration is valid. So that's about burden shifting. So if you register your work within five years of original publication, it is on its face, the registration and the details you know, within are deemed to be accurate. And a prima facie case just means that you've checked all the boxes of what it what it takes to, to prove something. It doesn't mean that that it's it's true just just for the sake, you know, just just based on the fact that it was it was registered within five years. It just means the burden is then on the opposing party to show that it's not valid. That's a, in in the legal field, burden shifting is a big deal. If you have the burden, you have you must upend what is what is is has has been demonstrated. If we don't have the burden, if if you register your work within five years of original capture, you have a you have an application that's been approved by the copyright office. You have a certificate that is prima facie evidence that everything contained in that registration is true, and therefore the burden shifts to the opposing party to say, wait a second, it's not potentially. Um, so so yes, that question comes up all the time. In short, never ever too late to register your work. Never. Um, I will tell you, there is a percentage of opposing parties and opposing counsel that I deal with that refuse to um, involve, uh, refuse to negotiate unless there's a copyright registration. I don't agree with that. I think it's I think it's petty and kind of time wasting and 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 really a little disingenuous because really we're you know, in the end, the parties are not really arguing over whether or not the photographer was the actual author of the photographs. Um, but 
it it helps from my standpoint it, uh, as a as an attorney representing photographers it helps to have work registered just because it's a non-issue i say you know to the opposing party whether or not they're re represented by counsel or not i say hey look this is this is the registration this is my client you want to challenge it it's up to you but you know the the issue of authorship and copyright uh should not we should not be discussing that at this point um because we have a registration so it, it does matter um but it doesn't it legally it it does not affect copyright photographers are copyright holders the moment they capture the image glenn uh asked how do you register your work so uh copyright.gov uh, is the website uh that has uh, a really great uh intuitive interface Copyright.gov is the is the website, uh, the web address for the Copyright Office in the United States. Uh, they um, they have a a system. Uh, well, they have a database of video instructional videos. If if things aren't uh, self explanatory or or can't be easily understood uh, just by following the directions. I I send links to their their video instructional videos all the time. I think they're really great. Uh, they they walk you through the process. They have the, you know they have a screen up on the up on the video that 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 shows you exactly what to do. It's a little the process is a little takes a little bit of getting used to because they they have kind of a spreadsheet system that requires the entry of certain information. You know, date captured, your name, the title, so forth. Um, but once you get into the swing of things, it's it's fairly easy, and you know exactly what to expect and then that spreadsheet has to coordinate with the image titles that you upload you upload uh separately um and that's that's pretty much it i mean it's an online process back you know i'm looking at phases where like we're probably all old enough uh that at one point the for for, for photographs the the copyright office required hard copies believe it yeah. or not uh, where and now it's it's all digital i don't know what the specs are but i imagine they're uh they're you know 72 dpi you know they're not very big it, it is not a big ask and not a big chore for photographers to to batch you know uh you know up to 750 images and and get a get a good workflow and and you know it just doesn't take the time that it used to and don't don't quote me but i think a one single group registration is like 55 to 75 dollars no more than 75 dollars so i mean it it is it is you know it's along the lines of paying paying 15 or 20 or 30 dollars a month to have a web hosting company host your your website with a gallery of you know a thousand of your photographs i mean you, it's just money that is it's just that that exchange is is too good in our favor i mean there're things that are just way too efficient not to do and registering your work is is one of them uh, alan and i talked uh, just the two of us prior prior to this um zoom call and at which point i i told told alan like the point of me being cynical is like long past like that that was a that was a that was a threshold that i passed you know many many years ago the idea that you can you can kind of um contract your way out this is this goes for anyone especially this subject matter um you know the these question is is there a disclaimer um we should put on our website to protect against ai scraping i encourage you to do it i'm not optimistic 
Um, I mean, the the I I would say the chances, and this is this is a fast moving kind of rapidly changing uh, field or or part of our business that is you know, no one really knows kind of where, where things are headed. Although we can touch on some copyright um, rulings that have been handed down recently. Um, Yes, it's, it's a long, the, yes, you should, you should put a disclaimer uh, that, you know, kind of that addresses the, addresses the issue of AI scraping and the fact that, that it is, it is prohibited. The effectiveness of doing that is, I would guess, probably close to close to, to nothing. It's it's the same it's the same concept of adding really good tight language about the use of your images, uh, you know, to you know, including it in a uh, an agreement before you shoot. It gives you the legal high ground, uh, and it stakes out uh, a position then. If push comes to shove, you are you occupy you know kind of an almost unassailable position of being correct legally. There's an enormous gap between being correct legally and being able to enforce it and being able to collect and being able to do all of these things. So, yes, it's a good idea to do that. But um, you know something tells me that the technology that is currently doing you know AI scraping just simply won't won't either see it or take that into consideration. Um, but you should de, I mean, it, it's a really good question because whether photographers like it or not, we will be involved in the legal issues about AI. We will. Um, so it's better to, you know, it's it's better to start developing into a better plaintiff, not necessarily for for you know, because you plan to file lots of suits, but you just anticipating a problem and getting out in front of it is always a really good idea. So I'll share ASMP is actually recommending that um, people basically say that this, this imagery is available. If you are interested in using this for AI training, then contact here so that you're showing you could have used it if you paid me, but you did. Right. Therefore, yeah. Yeah. It gives you a legal press, basically a kind of a stake in the ground that, yeah. you know, you, you could have contacted me. There was no reason. Right. Not. Right. Absolutely. Like there is no, I mean, we don't, we don't want to be, um, we don't want to be the parties of, um, you know, not laziness, but we don't want to be the parties that don't have the high ground. Like I, I, I always frame things in terms of litigation. Litigation is very, is actually very um, uh, un- uncommon. Uh, you know, my office litigates a fraction of the cases that we handle and, and resolve. But I always think of things in those terms because, in the end, if there is a dispute that can't be resolved, we want to be the party that puts notices up on their website about no AI, AI scraping. We want to be the party that has really well drafted contracts with uh, with their original clients that state what can and can't can't be done and the scope of the licenses we want to be the party that timely registers all of their work uh you know all of those things those those do matter uh d i would say that that that's a term that just means when ai software goes out into the digital world and and gathers information based on based on the parameters of the ai technology I've, and I've currently got a case that falls into that category. It's the first one that I've identified. And um, 
yeah, a resort yeah. company has managed to find bits and pieces of images of mine and then yeah. put something together. So, yeah. So, Alan, how did you discover that? Um, through Pixie, actually. Yeah. Okay. Um, there was enough of an image that they were able to do an image match. Mm -hmm. and uh, and that's how it came to to light for me otherwise i'm not sure how that's gonna work <laughs> right. there was something from norman there oh yeah norman addresses a, an issue that i think those of us that are working with pixie are having some heartburn over um yeah you see his so yeah here. norman norman's question is many companies will hot link an image and use it for their benefit on their websites Pixie said that, that we cannot pursue these infringements. Can anything be done? So what I, Norman, what I think you're describing is, um, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by hot link, but, I'm, I, but I, what I think you mean is you know, have, have kind of some embedded link that allows, allows a user or allows a website, an external website from the original, the original post to to display that image uh, on, on its website. Is that right? Yeah, that yeah, what's happening, um, David, is I've got a lot of clients where they'll um, I'll have an architect and and then I'll have somebody over here that's um, you know, I don't know. They got a website that's showing beautiful houses or decks or something, and they'll take the image and and hot link it from the architect so that it's displayed on their website. They're using right. it for sales, they're using it for advertising. But if you were to click that image, it goes back to the architect. So Pixie said, right. because it goes back to the original base, that it's not considered an infringement. And so, so it's a, that's a really, really interesting legal question. And so as of right now, there is a, what's called a circuit split. So a circuit split is there are, I forget, 11 or 12 uh, federal circuits, court circuits in the United States. Um, they are independent of one another and they develop their own case law based on the judges that presided over the case, you know, the, the respective cases in their uh, circuit. So unless the Supreme Court rules on a on the issue, then the circuits are free to develop their own case law on certain subject matters. It doesn't mean that there's, there's a free-for-all. As you might expect, your circuit split means there are kind of slight little nuances between different legal issues until they've been fully fleshed out or until the Supreme Court takes it up and, and decides it. Um, the, the, the last big circuit split uh, for in the copyright world was the registration rule versus the application rule. And the, the Supreme Court ruled a couple of years ago that um, that the registration rule was a rule that everyone needed to follow, meaning a person could not bring a case uh, for copyright infringement in US district court without a completed registration, as opposed to evidence that you had applied for a registration. Prior to that, the circuits were all over the place and some circuits allowed you to, to um, file a case when you just applied and not received it. Others required a complete registration. My point is now the issue that you just brought up is the subject of a circuit split. So depending on where you are, 
circuits have different legal opinions on them. The Ninth Circuit, um, where California uh, is, tends to kind of steamroller, steamroll over all the other jurisdictions, just because they have a much, much higher quantity of IP cases along with along with the second. And their, their um, case law and IP law tends to dominate the other circuits just because the other circuits just don't have the don't have the, the case law and the, and the experience. So as of a month ago, if not less, the Ninth Circuit held that embedding, that's what they call it, embedding is not infringement. So they, they held that their case had to do with Instagram. Um, a, photographer, a photographer uh filed suit against Instagram and said that um well there was a there was another party involved as well um there was a, there was another what they described as an infringing party that that used Instagram's embedding function to display the images that were originally posted to Instagram uh on their third party website and the Ninth Circuit held that, Instagram is not liable for infringement and the third party is not uh, liable for infringement. I don't, I don't agree with it, but currently that's the law. However, the fact pattern that you just described is different than Instagram because Instagram has special, they have special coding that allows kind of like one, I mean, they encourage it, right? I mean, that's their whole thing. They want people to share information. The, the legal difference is Instagram and its users are subject to different terms of use than a third-party website that uh, that that you know your original client's website where your work is displayed, uh, and, and everyone else that wants to use it. Those the relationship between the infringer that you're describing, the third party, and your original client's website, and a and uh, someone who embeds an Instagram image on their website. Those are two different fact patterns. And I would say, you know, I we I haven't delved you know very deeply into this. I would say your fact pattern is is distinct from the Instagram fact pattern because your client, you know, does not is not subject to the terms of any kind of user agreement, and therefore, you know, they. You know, there's nothing stating like in the Instagram case where all of the images that come in and are uploaded by users to the Instagram platform are subject to the terms that we agreed the first time we opened an Instagram account and started started uploading images. It's a very different fact pattern. So so that means that there there may be cause for pursuit then, David, because. Absolutely. Oh, OK, um, well, that's that's interesting because. Um, having worked with Pixie, I'd say two thirds of my infringement cases, you know, what I see as infringement are, they're all hot linked just in, in this very same matter. I will tell you that the, one of, one of the distinctions, the opinion made in this Instagram case was that they, they, the, the court held that the third party is not copying. Right, which is a that's one of the two elements uh, to to demonstrate a matter of copyright infringement is copying. They they made a distinction that the third party that is going in and copying the the link or pre providing some kind of mechanism to display the image on their website is actually not copying it. All they're doing is providing providing a system of display 
of the original copying that that um, takes place on the the Instagram website. I don't, you know, I don't agree with that, but that's the whole. But but because they're using it for sales or for money, you know, they're 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 generating business by using that image. Um, that's a, that's should... another very large distinction as well. Yeah. Oh, okay, and and for those of you guys have that have not worked with David, um, his him himself, his team, they're excellent. He's handled some cases for me. I, I highly recommend him. Thank you so much, David. You're welcome, Norman. Um, all right. So the latest, the latest question is from Justin. Um, so if we license an image to a client and that client posts on Instagram in agreement with our license, and third-party companies like Furniture can display our images via embedding, how do we protect our, our, ourselves as photographers? Okay, it's a it's a great question because. You know, I think if you're in the Ninth Circuit, you're probably out of luck as a photographer. I mean, again, everything is every every legal case has some there's some distinguishing factor. Like all legal cases are not the same. This case would be different because the 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 the, the terms of the agreement that between the photographer and the client that led to posting on Instagram are different than different for every, you know, kind of every other image that appears on Instagram are probably subject to different terms. Many, the vast majority probably have no terms, you know, probably they're, you know, they're, they're photographs taken by individuals that are not professional photographers. But so I, I would say that the, the threshold, the important threshold in a case like this is the image being properly licensed and then being, being up uploaded to Instagram by a proper licensee. If you cross that threshold, it's probably you're we're probably out of luck as photographers to pursue that as an infringement matter. So this is a really good example of the the secondary issues that most architectural and real estate photographers have, which is how much work and what type of work do I need to do pre-shoot? Right. I mean, the the best the the clients that are the best at doing that that I have are the ones that have thought all of this through, and and not just thought all the through, but have incorporated their limitations and their terms into the agreement that they execute with a client, and the client has a explicit understanding of what the license means. So you know. Just to be real simple and straightforward about it, if you if this is a possibility, then if it bothers you enough, then you need to get out in front of it and make sure that your client understands that that is not part of the license. If it doesn't bother you enough and it's a possibility, uh, then 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 maybe not. You know, it it is a. But strictly from a legal legal standpoint, I would say if that's the fact pattern, it falls into the category that I described in the Ninth Circuit, where once it goes onto the once it goes onto the Instagram platform, once the 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 user that uploads the image to Instagram, in this case the photographer's original client, they agree to those terms to to Instagram, and and then from that point on, it is cross the threshold into DMCA protection, not only DMCA protection, but Instagram, but but according to the Ninth Circuit, protection um, to Instagram from third parties embedding that that link 
if they repost or copy the, the photo, that's a different story versus just embedding, right? Totally different story. And that happens. I mean, that happens all the time. I have I have cases all the time, in, you know, where someone, a, a, an infringer has sourced an image from Instagram or Facebook, but they don't use the embedding uh, interface to, to display the image. Either they don't want that look on their website or they want to crop it or whatever. And, and that's a distinction that I make with opposing counsel all the time, which is, well, you may be right if if you would have used the the embedding uh, um, kind of uh, interface on Facebook or Instagram, but you didn't. You, you what you did is you made a copy of the page, or you even you even made a screen capture of the image display on Facebook. Those two things are not the same. You are making a copy, and you are moving the copy from one place to another. You are not embedding the image. Factually, those two things are very different. Yeah, David, I've, I've had several cases where uh, somebody has has done that very thing um, where, where they've they've stripped out the attribution information that was original in the original post and then just reposted the image. And then those were legitimate infringements that have been pursued and, and recoveries been made on them. But Instagram also has a mechanism um, for asserting copyright and requesting a takedown. And I've had a couple instances where it's been so egregious that Instagram has uh, deleted the account of the infringer. So um, there is that mechanism as well. It's not a difficult thing to go through, but if, if uh, you get into the menu, then it, uh, you, you'll find that Instagram has, uh, a, you have to fill out a form saying that you are the copyright holder and this is an unauthorized usage, so on and so on. And, and, and they do take that down in a timely way. And if it's egregious enough, they do block the user. D asked, um, I have an infringement. What do you need from me to pursue? Um, and then a list, registration, contract, screen captures. Um, you're almost, almost, you've almost got the complete list. So the, 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 the checklist that I always uh, communicate to my client is, my clients are uh, uncropped, uh, uncropped low res versions of all of your images that are at issue. Uh, examples of the of the potential infringement, whether or not they're screen captures or active URLs or or anything that's in print or otherwise. Uh, registration information if it exists, and um, information about the the infringer. That's it. You know that that is that is all you need to uh, to have to have an office like mine kind of do a do a kind of a, a quick review on on the viability of a case. Overwhelmingly, I mean, we're again, like we're all old enough to remember before before there was an online world, um, you know, copyright infringement by of photographs was very, very rare because you had to, you know, infringer had to actually stumble upon a slide or a negative or a print or or some kind of printed version of it in a magazine or something or, or a billboard but you know now now the circumstances of you know they're they're completely changed from 15 20 years ago i would say 99% of the the work that i perform on behalf of my clients deals with online misuse so those are the those are the things those are the basics that that I always request from a, a client uh, concerning a new case. So my question has to do with AI, gener AI generated items in your photo. 
So right now, when I register my photos, I register the final image as, as architectural interiors were, you know, usually blending several images together um, for a one final. And the one final one that I do, that's what I register. Um, I understand that you cannot copyright AI generated content. And I believe you're supposed to identify that when you register, I'm not sure the process yet. I haven't looked into it enough yet, but does that change how we should register our image? Should we register it without the, like, if you like add like, um, like a swimming pool. Okay. Like you've got an ugly swimming pool and you add water, use the generative field to do that or something like that. I guess, how does that, how are we supposed to handle those things when it comes to copyright registration? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, it, especially with uh, architectural uh, architectural photographers that, in my experience, rely much more on combining combining images and kind of a little bit a little bit more post production um, than let's say you know a, a portrait photographer that shoots available life portraits. I mean, they're, they're two different things. Um, in the end, um, you should register the image that you consider to be the final the final product. Everything else is arguably copyrightable as well, right? It's an original, meets the minimum qualifications for a copyrighted work. You know, you you made all these decisions about lighting and framing and subject matter and timing and all those things. Um, but uh, in the end, the the work that is um, the work that matters when it comes to to copyright or is is your final version because that is your final i mean it's it's not a great analogy but the analogy would be um you know if you are if you are an artist that works in collages or or you're a painter even you know you there are different there are different stages to the final work like you you might you might be 95% done your painting and then 2 months later you come back and add a little bit you know, each version of that painting is not, you know, it's arguably, it's arguably, they're all arguably copyrightable, but in the end, you have a finished product. Uh, that's the result of a lot of different stages. Same with photography, like your finished product is the copyrightable work. Well, it's the copyrightable work that you should worry about, you know, because if, if the final version is a version that is copied in the end, then you you obviously want to have a registration on that that final version. Let me just give an, another clarification on that, Dee. Um, I had a conversation with, um, uh, I probably shouldn't say his name, one of the counsel to ASMP recently. And uh, what he said regarding that was, um, I mean, his opinion was that, uh, that you should register what uh, what is the final stage of that that you are still the creator of that if you are the creator and and you have incorporated any ai whether through photoshop or any of the new um things that are coming out uh, as long as you are still the original creator then that uh, satisfies that um, or should satisfy that for future when it leaves you and you are no longer the primary creator then then things change right. That's that's very good advice, and it's still being you know to be clear that that line wherever that line is um, between AI being involved and not being involved and and that that is still very much up in the up in the air. I mean, the, a recent holding uh, came down that 
that that held AI AI generated work is not copyrightable. Well, you know, the headline is is a little bit is a little bit intimidating, but you know, if you read the if you read the finer details of it, you know, it is it, it, by AI, it is a hundred percent, you know, the 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 result of the the would-be copyrighted work is a hundred percent the result of of AI technology. Like, you know, there there might be some involvement somewhere you know, somewhere prior in the, in the development of the software, but it has, there's no, there's no individual creative expression at, involved in the process whatsoever. There's a huge distinction between that and a photographer being a skilled, you know, skilled in post-production where they, they uh, kind of manipulate the levels and, and combine images and, and so forth. There's a, there's an enormous gap between those two things. So Jack asked, I find many of my images on how they were placed there by random people as part of some design theme they're illustrating. Uh, who is the infringer and is it worth pursuing? Does House's terms uh, of service allow this? So House is like I deal with almost not every day. I'm exaggerating, but they they are for architectural photographers. They they are kind of this they're kind of this this monster uh, that. Um, you know, that that everyone, you know, we all need to deal with so. So House, like almost all other, uh, I wouldn't call House maybe social media, but it's the same concept. It, all of all of these social media companies, they are they're smart enough to to have terms of service that that uh, extend a license to House. Uh, by all of the users that upload images, right? The threshold is, and they're, they're, they cover themselves by creating this threshold of the user uh, and the upload. Everything else uh, doesn't matter from their standpoint. So for it, for example, if it's a, if it's an uploader that does not have copyright to the image, um, houses by, by nature of them being protected by DMCA, they're not the infringer. So uh, they the they kind of wash their hands of everything that is is outside the scope of their terms of service. So when you as a user upload an image to House or really anywhere else, Facebook, Instagram, anything else, you are attesting that you either are the copyright holder or the rights holder of broad rights holder, or you have some kind of authority to to upload, copy and upload this image. That's all that has needs to wash their hands of any kind of liability, along with, along with DMCA uh, requirements. But the question is, who's the infringer? So the infringer is, is the party that uploaded the image to house uh, to, you know, for, you know, whatever benefit they want to get out of it. That's the infringer. But <laughs> it gets much more complicated because once the infringer uploads its house, if if people take it, if 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 third parties then see it on house and use house as a source for other copying, then that's a whole different that's a whole different legal landscape and a whole different fact pattern. But in cases that I've had with house, yes, Jack, you are the the up the original upload the the, the original user that uploaded the image that did 
did not possess a license or was the copyright holder, that's the infringer. And ultimately things are gonna, the legal case of the infringement, whether however it gets disseminated after it's posted in the house, it's all gonna funnel back to that original, that original user that uploaded it. But you know, th this is this is just like the Instagram case. If you once your original client uploads rightly or wrongly, uploads images of yours to house or a platform like that, you have just lost control of of the of the, the chain of custody and the legal the legal high ground. Um, well, maybe not necessarily legal high ground, the legal um, efficiency of enforcing your infringement. So if your contract with your client includes the, the, the use by your client of your images on house, that is an entirely different scenario than, than the opposite. Because once you permit your clients to do that, um, your, you, you know, the images go to house and, and to be clear, users of house that are not the copyright holder of the images or not your not the original user that posted the images they don't have the right to then copy those images i don't want to give you the impression that that you know once they're posted to house or instagram like everything is everything is lost that's not true um in the instagram case you know as long as they embed the image and you're in the ninth circuit you're okay um how's I can't remember whether or not they have embedding. I'm pretty sure they do. You know, they they have they have a whole kind of drop down menu of different selections about how to how to kind of share the work. So to avoid to avoid problems like this. Now, there's no right answer. You know, it would be you know depending on where you are, depending on the images, and depending on how you feel about about licensing, it might be a very good thing for your clients to post your images on house, but more times than not, it's probably not, you know, so as in the front end of things, you want to make, you just want to make explicit to your client what they can and can't do. And, and there's, you know, this is, this is the attorney in me, but if you want your client posting things to house, your clients, your, your, your contracts should explicitly state you are not permitted to, to, to copy these images to house. I mean, or Instagram or so-and-so and, you don't have to be kind of ham-fisted about it. I mean, there's there's a there's a nuance to explaining to your clients. This is, you know, from my perspective, uh, you know, I am creating these images for you. I treat you as kind of my primary client, and everything else is is less valuable to me as a photographer. And therefore, you know, if we negotiate the right for you to post to house or Instagram, there's there's a value to that to me and our and our agreement, our monetary agreement needs to reflect that. That that's all. So you just need to be you need to be clear with your client what the license entails. Because I would I would be my anecdotal experience is I would be willing to get bet most clients make the assumption absent anything otherwise that they can do whatever they want with the images after after they contract you with you to it is there is there language that you think is essential to have in our contracts and um invoices and things like that with regard to licensing yeah i mean basic you know every every photographer has their threshold for how much or how little but you know, and this is just, this is stating the obvious, but sometimes, sometimes 
photographers don't give it any thought or are really hesitant about it. I mean, the, the best thing that you can do just fundamentally is incorporate language on copyright into your into your correspondence, not just your contracts, but any chance you get, um, use it um, to assert or, or state that copyright is the sole, you know, you are the sole copyright holder to these images, absent any kind of license, you know, otherwise. This seems, it seems really obvious, but a certain percentage of the cases that I handle on behalf of of architectural photographers include this, like this, this sub issue right from the beginning that clients and their counsel assert, well, this is work for hire. You know, show me, show me how this is not work for hire. So I have to spend, my client has to spend this time and effort uh, just getting to the point where we can start negotiating about resolving the matter because we have to, we have to go through the motions of laying out why it wasn't work for hire. So the simple, the simple end to that conversation is for photographers to have language in their correspondence and more importantly, their, their, their contracts that explicitly state Alan Blakely is the, is the sole copyright holder of these images. Copyright is vested in the, in the photographer at the moment the images are captured in accordance to U.S. copyright law. Um, any license to use these images um, must, you know, must be negotiated. Uh, any third-party uh, uh, usage must be negotiated with the photographer. I mean, that, that is, that's a, that's a really good start. There are other things you can do, but, um, you know, I found the the more clear and the more often you can, you can put the issue of copyright in front of your clients, the, the better off you're going to be, meaning you are going to have less incidents of infringement where you have to expend time and money and, and stress, like, you know, chasing people down. Thanks. Thanks a lot, David. Norm, let's, you had something. Yeah, I, David, I, I do a, I photograph a lot of hotels. Um, I, I have a, I have a client who's um, works in several states, and builds hotels for Hilton and Marriott, Holiday Inn, um, Wyndham, and when I when I shoot for the client, um, I find that my pictures end up on third party uh, booking agencies, on all over the world, and 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 you know Pixie doesn't want to pursue any of those because they said, well, they're, you know, because they're third-party booking agencies. Like they'll, if, if I shoot something uh, for a Marriott in, in Houston, you know, and, and I, I see them, someone using that picture for another Marriott in Boston or one in, in, in Washington state or, or Canada. Um, is, is there any way to control that? Because I mean, I've got, <laughs> I've got hundreds of cases like that. And yeah, there's not, nothing I can do because my pictures are all over the place. No, no photo credit. No, no nothing. You just yeah. The, the what what you described is at least from my perspective, without a doubt, the most frustrating fact scenario. Like the fact pattern. What you described is it, there. There, it, it be, because typically, typically we you know in a, in a in a simpler type of case we know who the infringer is right it's on the it's on the company's website it's on the company's printed material we know what the path is um what you're describing like you know booking.com or or so forth we never quite know the path that the image took and i'll tell you it's it's the it's the single most frustrating fact pattern i have because you know in theory um booking booking.com may be liable 
right? Depending on whether or not they they have an agent with DMC, you know, with a copyright office, whether or not they have some kind of DMCA eligibility, um, uh, and even if they do, uh, you know, there's also potential liability with the user that uploaded that image, depending on who it is. But we there's so many steps in in situations that you just described. It's it's exhausting um, pursuing those cases because you reach out to booking.com and they say, we didn't do it. Now they could have, and they could be like blowing, blowing smoke, um, but we don't know. And we're not gonna know until we file a suit and engage in discovery. Uh, and then I'll just give you kind of a, a general kind of path that these cases tend to take. I'll reach out to, I'm not picking on booking.com, but they, you know, they, they're involved in cases. I'll just leave it at that. So, you know, you go to booking.com and they, and they said, well, we didn't do it. Like that's their response. So I said, okay, well, who did it? You know, what, what user did it? And they said, well, that's, that's confidential information. We can't give that to you. So the only way that we could really find out is if we issue a subpoena, you know, we, we initiate some kind of action and even then, even if it's a user that can, that has some kind of arguable rights to it, that uploaded it, uh, you know, we, you still have to, um, you still have to understand, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the scope of that, of that license. So does the scope mean that they can upload it to uh, booking.com and then somehow maintain some kind of control over what other booking companies do? Because other booking companies, you know, everyone, fundamentally everyone's lazy. And, you know, if, if Expedia wants a photograph of a, of a hotel, they, I guarantee you, they have some kind of, some kind of software that looks for generic, you know, images that they can plug into 20 different properties and call it a day. So it just, that scenario is like the worst case scenario because it's just from a, from an attorney's point of view, it is like, you don't even want to start going down the rabbit hole because it's going to cost a lot of time, a lot of money. And in the end, you might get, you might end up with nothing. It, they're, they're the single most frustrating type of cases, what you just described. And very hard to pursue. Norman, just what I've discovered uh, with one of the companies that you mentioned, a uh, hotel chain, is that uh, that the individual property is expected to upload those images to the corporate server. And once they're on the corporate server, then they're kind of free game for all the other properties. Um, and I, I've got a couple cases against them right now, so I can't mention their name probably. <laughs> but that's yeah that's that's where and so um so my license uh and my invoice and everything is with the individual property not with the corporation all right so just justin asked the case uh in a case norman is describing would a dmca notice uh, be effective in getting them removed in theory yes i mean that's the function that that is the purpose of dmca among others uh a dmca takedown notice when when you know filled out and submitted properly uh should have the effect of removal if it doesn't uh there is a cause of action for failing to expeditiously that's the legal term uh remove uh an image uh after a dmca takedown notice so uh i, I haven't done it many times but i've done it a number of times where entities that that are otherwise protected under DMCA don't 
expeditiously respond to a DMCA takedown notice. Typically, like expedition, like the shortest the uh, uh, the shortest period of time that a court has ruled is not expeditiously is 14 days. So they have, you know, upon upon completion and upon upon properly uh, submitting a DMCA takedown notice, they have they have 14 days to to remove it. And then if they don't, you have a you have a cause of action for infringement against the against the the otherwise protected uh, DMCA entity. So, so if I can, so if I'm understanding you, for all these cases that I'm talking about, where you know Expedia in booking and so forth. If I send them a DMCA notice and they don't remove the image, then I could I could contact your office and you could pursue that. Yes, that's that's a better scenario. Yes. Okay, that's good. Yeah, and I think I mean the best the best hope and the best the the most realistic expectation in cases like this is that for a minimal amount of work on your part, you you get the images removed. Right. Like that is that is I mean, we don't we don't get to we don't get to win and clobber the opponent in every single scenario. I mean, it's just it's not realistic in a case like this. If it is important enough to expend a certain a certain amount of time and effort, uh, you know, DMCA takedown notices are are essentially the same, um, depending on what your threshold is. Uh, you know, it 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 could be worth it to invest the time and money just getting the images, just getting the images removed, right? Not being compensated for them, but but so your images are not just floating around uh, online willy nilly. You know, there's a value to that. If you do not, um, I guess, protect your copyright, like if you choose not to do that because you don't have time, don't want to, and then later decide to do, so decide to do it. Is there, I, I guess, does your behavior affect the potential outcome in future legal cases? Because you've never pursued is, it before. Yeah, that that is a really good question. Um, the answer to your question is no. Um, you are free as a copyright holder. You are free to choose at will how you how you treat the the subject matter of copyright infringement. Um, there are plenty of photographers that are clients of mine now that have been shooting for 30 years and have never up until recently have never chosen to expend time and time and effort uh enforcing their copyright and now they did there's nothing there's there's no unlike patents uh and trademarks that have a, a, an element of enforcement that you know kind of may validate or invalidate the claim there's no such thing with copyright um the 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 kind of the sub issue of that is copyright infringement is subject to a three year statute of limitations. So um, now there's there's it's not it's not a hard um, three year period of statute of limitations. So it's not from the time of infringement. It's the time of discovery. So a photographer has three years from the from the point of discovery to enforce. Uh, or, or at minimum, uh, assert their copyright. If you, if you let that, if you discover things and wait three years, then you lose the right. Um, but it's, but it's, but it's not for lack of, it's not for lack of in like having a general, not having a general policy of enforcing your copyright. It's just, it's on an individual in, infringement uh, basis. So 
And to be clear, the discovery rule, which copyright, there's a, there's a discovery rule and there's an injury rule. Some causes of action are subject to the um, uh, injury rule and some are subject to the discovery rule. The injury rule means that the statute of limitations, whatever the cause of action is, starts at the time of injury. So, you know, the time that you're, from the time you're hit by another car or someone, you know, someone allegedly slanders you. That's that's the 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 point of um, the point of injury. Copyright is subject to the discovery rule, which means that the statute of limitations does not start to run until you discover it. Now, the interpret you know, there's a wide interpretation of when that when that is. The consensus is um, known or should have known. So should have known means if you are actively engaging Pixie or image rights or some other reverse search uh, entity, and you are looking at your potential patterns of infringement 10 times a day for 10 years in a row, you're going to be held to a different standard than someone who has never engaged you know, any company like that or never even thought about uh, their potential infringements. So there's there's the devil is in the details in when the statute of limitation starts under the discovery rule. But in general, it's from the time that you discover the infringement. Well, we're, we've, we've just passed the, the hour mark here, which we said we'd hold to. And uh, unless anyone's got um, a pressing issue that they'd like to bring up to David, I think we'll wrap things up. Is there any anything else that uh, somebody's been sitting on that now's the time? Um, I've just been asking a couple of times, the copyright that we have on our website and the copyright that we have on our uh, logo on our pictures is that are either one worth anything yes yeah i mean it is it doesn't a copyright notice doesn't have the the um importance that it used to um prior to the latest incarnation of the the copyright act that was in, in you know 1976 it was a requirement that that copyright holders attach some kind of indicia of copyright. Right now, that is not a requirement. Um, so there's there are a couple of different aspects to your question. It's definitely not a requirement. You do not have to attach your name, copyright, anything to your photographs. The burden is is entirely on the copier to determine whether or not something is is copyrighted. You don't have any of that burden. Um, but uh, depending, you know, it just every 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 case is slightly different but if you are on the in the habit of attaching a copyright symbol followed by your name or even just a watermark with your name or your company or something that identifies you as not even the copyright holder like the the owner or the caretaker or the proper licensee or something you are when push comes to shove in litigation you are going to be in a better position because in, in especially in actual damages cases, it doesn't matter because because intent and kind of willfulness and innocence has nothing to do with actual damages. In a case with statutory damages where your work or works are timely registered and you are eligible for statutory damages, you are in a much stronger position to 
demonstrate willfulness or something close to that when you have evidence that you attached a watermark with a copyright notice in your name to all of your images and then and then the infringer uh your your work shows up on the infringer's website or printed material with your copyright cropped out of it those are great facts i mean for me you know for for an attorney representing photographers those are facts that i would love to have so that's why it benefits you it benefits you because you are you are taking these steps to to uh, demonstrate that you are the copyright holder, and if the if the infringer uh, overtly or or not kind of steamrolls through those and and you know, heaven forbid like crops out your your copyright, uh, you're just in a much much stronger position for higher statutory damages. And for what it's worth, there is a separate cause of action for the removal of copyright management information. So. If you can show that prior to the copying, there was copyright management information, in this case, a copyright notice with your name, and post-infringement, they, you know, it was cropped out, that is a separate cause of action from copyright infringement that comes with its own damages, its own statutory damages, its own attorney's fees. Um, it's a very powerful uh, kind of set of facts to have when we're pursuing cases. What happens when someone strips out your metadata? My question. Same thing. I'm, I'm yeah. meticulous in filling out all the metadata. Same thing. That is that is included in in it's for what it's worth. It's 17 USC uh, 1202. So that's the statute. If you want to look at it, it is um, it go. It's a short short and sweet. It says you know if if copyright management information has been there are two ways of there are two ways of 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 um, proving it. You can either the opposing party can either remove it or they can add false copyright management information. And in some cases, people do both. Mm. <laughs> and if you think I'm if you think I'm joking about uh infringers photoshopping out copyright notices or or cropping it just so that I'm not. <laughs> it, it happens, it happens not often, but it does happen. Well, you've you've been very generous with this meeting today, David. And uh I've learned a lot, and I'm sure everyone else has as well. I've been taking notes. Um, and uh, we will uh, have this up here in a week or so um, on the podcast platforms. Um, I'll send, uh, well, I'll send everybody in the organization a link as well. But uh, David, too, if you if you're interested in, in maybe uh, having this as a resource uh, for yourself or uh, for any any use, um, I'll have that for you as well. It appears on our YouTube channel as well as uh, all the major podcast platforms. So this has been really useful information that honestly, I have not heard anywhere else so concisely. So thank you so much. This is very really welcome. And uh, with that, we uh, want to tell everyone to have a great and safe weekend and David, enjoy yourself in San Francisco. And we look forward to speaking uh, again next month. We'll announce that uh, that date soon. And uh, uh, in the meantime, stay safe. And uh, David, thank you again. Absolutely. This has been another episode of A Photographer's Life. If you've enjoyed this program, please let us know by liking this episode and subscribing to this channel. A Photographer's Life is brought to you by the Association of Independent Architectural Photographers. This episode is copyrighted and may not be used in full or in part without the written permission of the AIAP. Please join us again soon for another inside look at the world of professional architectural photography.